We are here, we are good, we are golden. Uh, welcome, we are uh, so glad that you are here. My name is Eric, I'm going to be the pastor here at Mosaic. Uh, normally I don't pull double duty guitar and preach, but Matt's out uh, camping, uh, on vacation, so I get to kind of fill in, so that was fun to jam with, with the band today. Uh, as Nate said, we're continuing on our series, Little Stories with Big Ideas, as we work through uh, the book of Luke. Uh, and today is Father's Day, so uh, one more time I just want to say Happy Father's Day to all the dads that are here. Uh, but that word, that word father can carry with it a lot of baggage, depending on what kind of dad that you grew up with. For some of you, when I talk about the word father, like you have these good feelings, you had a great dad who loved you, uh, who was a great example, and even pointed you towards Jesus. But for some of you, when you hear that word, uh, you kind of start cringing. You had a, a terrible example of a dad. Maybe he was, you know, uh, religious or stingy or greedy or, you know, he was abusive. Maybe some of you, when I say the word father, you're just filled with this ache because you wish you had a dad. And you grew up not even knowing who your dad was. And so when we talk about this word father, even on Father's Day, it's, it's such a loaded word. And the Bible speaks of God as our Father. And sometimes that can be a great word picture, depending on your experience, or sometimes it can fill you with a lot of baggage, like, I don't even know what a good father looks like. Today we're going to dive into this little story of a really big idea. And Jesus talks about God as our Father. And I know that any time we, we, we talk about God as Father, we all come from a wide variety of places. But today we're going to see good father uh, who loves his two sons. One who's very, very rebellious, and one who's very, very religious. And we're going to talk about the gospel. Uh, if you're taking notes this morning, you can fill in the blank. Um, it may not help you to stay on uh, focus. That's at least I do too. And we want to help you not just give you some information to have a life of transformation. And so we think if you can hear it, if you can uh, read it, see it, write it down, and discuss it later. It'll help get those truths way down deep. Uh, so the first one, uh, one of the signs... Hey, Rick. I also didn't like got a lot of feedback. I don't know if you can fix that. Sorry. Uh, this morning, one of the signs you may not grasp the unique radical nature of the gospel is that you are certain that you do. You may not grasp the unique radical nature of the gospel it may be that you are certain, I get it all figured out, I totally understand the gospel. And sometimes when we think, when we think of the gospel, we don't fully understand uh, sin, salvation, what it means to be alienated from God, what does it mean that he saves us. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And this parable we're going to look at today is, is very famous. For centuries it's been called the parable of the prodigal son. Now, Jesus didn't name it this. Uh, all those names, those subheadings, those are added by people afterwards, just so we're all aware. The chapters and verses are not inspired. The headings aren't inspired by God. Uh, those are just people afterwards add those in. And for many years, it's been known as the, the parable of the prodigal son. But it's a great mistake to think it's just about one son, the son. There's actually two sons, two sons that are lost. A story of a younger brother and an older brother. We're meant to compare and contrast them. And if we don't, we're missing out 
on the radical message of what Jesus is saying here. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me. And uh, we're gonna, today's going to be a little longer than normal, so buckle up. We're going to try to get through a whole chapter of Luke today. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. So are you guys ready to dive in and uh, just get, yeah, this is going to be awesome. You guys ready this morning? Uh, I'm going to pray one more time, and then we're going to read God's Word. Oh, you join me in prayer. God, we thank you for your Word. God, we thank you for Dr. Luke who carefully investigated and wrote down the words of Jesus so that today, 2,000 years later, we could uh, learn more about Jesus, learn more about how to be like him and, and love like him and do the things that Jesus did. God, I pray that uh, you would help me this morning as I share your truths. Uh, God, that uh, I would be clear that people would understand the radical nature of the gospel, uh, that uh, your Holy Spirit would change and transform lives this morning, uh, that you would use me as your messenger. You need to pray. Amen. All right, so let's get going. Luke 15, verse 1. We're going to go through three parables today, three for the price of one. Uh, Luke 15, verse 1. Get your Bible so you can follow along on your smartphone or back here as well. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, we've talked and gone through Luke, that Luke often puts tax collectors in their own category. That's how bad of sinners they were. People thought they were just, there's like sinners and then tax collectors are even worse. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, we're all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So in Jesus' day, to uh, eat with sinners is, is to say, I accept you. You are welcome here. Not perfect. We're cool with that. Jesus hung out with sinners. Jesus hung out with tax collectors. And the religious people didn't like that. They're like, why is Jesus hanging out with these kinds of people? And Jesus knows their thoughts. And so, uh, to kind of respond to what they're thinking, Jesus is going to tell three stories back to back. And each one is going to build on the other one. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. And I picture Jesus kind of like a little chuckle on his face, he looks at the Pharisees. Then over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. This Pharisees not many need to repent. He goes on, Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. This is probably this woman's dowry. It's what she needs to do to get married. It's very, very important to her. And when she finds it, when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy for the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So he tells these first two stories, and, and the Pharisees, are, they're listening. They're like, okay, I'm not entirely sure what you're saying to us, but I'm not sure I like it. And then he's going to tell the well-known, uh, maybe even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably heard the phrase, the prodigal son, and this is the story that he tells. And it's really a, a play with two acts. Act one, the lost younger brother. Act two, the lost older brother. And act one starts with a speech, and Jesus' original audience, the Pharisees, as well as the kind of regular tax collectors and sinners listening on, just would have been shocked at the way this story starts in verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. 
And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. All right. Jesus' original audience just would have been scandalized and shocked by this. Basically, what this younger brother is saying to his dad is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. My life would be better off if you were just dead and I could inherit what's coming to me. The younger brother, his inheritance was one-third. Usually the older brother got two-thirds, and the younger brother get one-third. He says, you know what? I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want you. That's the best-case scenario. I guess second-best-case scenario is, just give me my stuff. Give me what's due to me, and I want no relationship with you. Now, Jesus is the original audience. They're like, this is so scandalous, so shocking. And then they'd be even more shocked by the way that this father responds. It says he did it. He divided up all his property, all his wealth between his two sons. See, they would have been so shocked because the only really decent response to your younger son coming up to you and saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want your stuff. I don't want you. Is to kick him out and beating him on his way out. Like, you no good, ungrateful. Like, get out of here. When you learn some, you know, a gratefulness, you can come back into the house. That's what he should have done. That's what they were all thinking. But the fact that the father actually does it, they're like, whoa, what? This is crazy. And see, this was, this was costly what the father had to do. See, in this state, this father's wealth would have probably been tied up in real estate. Uh, you know, a lot of his land. And so to get one third of his net worth, he had to sell off a lot of his land. And you know, when you have to sell things off, you see people on Craigslist, like, have to get rid of stuff, you don't get a good price for it. And so he sell off his land, you know, a bunch of it, so he can give a third in cash to his son. And in our mobile, kind of, we move around society, we don't really fully understand, in Jesus' day, the relationship of people to their land. And uh, the musical Oklahoma, how many guys have seen Know the musical Oklahoma, yeah, the theater fans, yeah. Uh, they sing it really well. They say, oh, we know we belong to the land, and the land we belong to is grand. Notice the song doesn't say the land that belongs to them is grand. The land they belong to is grand. There's this idea that as a people, you belong to this land, this land is your heritage. And to lose part of the land was to lose so much standing in the community, it was what your grandfathers, your great-grandfathers, your great-grandfathers have used as their business, as their wealth, and their inheritance. This father is losing a major share of himself, of his standing in the community. Not only is there a great cost to the father and wealth and status, but he's really, he's really going to endure the worst thing I think that a human can go through. Rejected love. He loves his son so much, and his son is just rejected. How many of us, when we experience rejected love, our response is to lash out in anger at the person? Or we just try to ignore them and write it off and just forget all about them when someone's rejected us? But instead, we're going to see this father is going to maintain love for his wayward son. Let's go on. Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had to all his wealth. It took a journey into a far country. I picture the dad just like, hoping and waiting his son would turn around and come back. I think that younger brother just took off without a second glance behind him. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, 
a severe famine arose in that country, and it began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. This is as bad as it can get for this guy. He's a good Jewish boy. Pigs are unclean. Not supposed to be around them. Not supposed to have anything to do with them. And the only job he can get at is, is feeding the pigs. He's hungry. And he's homeless. And he's just working a job that's just not funny. Unclean. And he was long and be fed at the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. The apartment that he had got foreclosed on. Lost all his money. Lost his car. He sold all his nice clothes, you know, at the first store. He's homeless. He's got nothing. He's hungry. He's hoping to get some pink slop. And no one will even give him that. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here of hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he knows, I've got a big debt to pay to my dad. I, I have no right to come home and ask me a son again, but maybe I can be a hired servant. In this culture, a hired servant was different than a slave that was more like a craftsman who lived in the city. And so his plan was, i got to pay back what I owe my dad. And so he said, you know, maybe my dad will apprentice me to one of the craftsmen. I can learn a trade, and then slowly I can start to pay my dad back. Because, man, I owe him big, and I've got to make up for everything I've, I've squandered. I've got to pay him back if he's ever going to have any chance to restore our relationship. What has this father been doing the whole time his son has been gone? I think, I think this father has been waiting. I think he's been waiting every morning. He gets up early. He goes and looks down the road. He's looking for his son. Every day he's hoping and waiting. He's praying to God. Say, God, bring my son home. Maybe he's got friends who are traveling to that far country and they're telling about his son and he hears about his son living recklessly and spending everything and then he hears about his son who's OD'd and he's living on the streets, he's filthy and he's dirty and he just hears these stories and the father is torn up by it. And every morning he's looking, he's waiting for his son to come home. I think as he's out in the field and he's supervising his, his crews as they're working in the field, I think he's, he finds himself just looking over his shoulder all the time. Is he coming down the road? No. He keeps praying, he keeps waiting. And then, then one day, he sees this figure down the road walking. He's like, is that my boy? And he recognizes he recognizes the way he walks, how he's dressed. As dads, we watch our kids, and we recognize our kids by the way they walk. He sees his son. He's like, that's it. That's my son. My son is back. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now what this dad does, does something that no distinguished uh, father would have done in this culture. The patriarch never would have ran. 
Guys don't run in this culture, especially the pillar of the community, this dignified father. Kids run, maybe you, you know, young men would run, women would run, but never the patriarch. He's wearing these long robes. Like, to run, what does he got to do? He's got to pick him up, right? He's got to show off all his legs. It's like running in a heavy dress. Like, he's got to do, like, pull up the skirts and do a high kind of skirt kick. Like, guys, I just want to pull up our skirts, right? That's what he had to do to run. But, so you never did that. But what does he do? The Bible says he ran to him. I picture the younger son, he's got his head down, and he's kind of walking. Like, he's filled with apprehension. He doesn't know. He, his father actually, by law, could kill him by the way he's dishonored him. He's like, I don't know if my dad's going to receive me. I don't know if he's going to kill me. I don't know, if, you know what he's going to do. Maybe I can get a job. Here's his dad running with his robes like pulled up high. Like maybe his boxer shorts are showing like in the cartoons. they got the hard boxers, you know. And he's running he's like, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. Son's like, what? And the dad just drops his robes, fills with this huge hug, and he starts kissing him all over. And the Greek here says he kissed him and kept kissing him and kept kissing him and kept kissing him. I love that picture. Some of us dads, we're not affectionate enough with our kids. Like some of us, we say, oh, I can never do that. I can never run towards my kid, hug him and kiss him. I need to be tough with my kids. I believe very strongly that God calls us as dads to be both tough and tender. I think Jesus modeled that so well. He was tough with the religious people he had to be tough with, and he was tender with sinners who came to him needing forgiveness. And as dads, we need to model that as well as to be both tough and tender, tough to defend our families, tough to provide, tough to just do what needs to be done, filled with that grit. We also need to be tender. Love our kids. Now, some of you haven't been hugged by your father in years. I'm sorry for that. But us dads, we need to hug and kiss our kids no matter how old they are. Even your boys. Now, don't do it like in an embarrassing way. Like if your kids playing sports and they're playing lacrosse or <coughs> baseball and they hit like a double, like don't run out in the field and like give them a big hug and kiss right there. Like, well done, boy! Wait till later. Do it appropriately. And even if your, your kids are, are fully grown, even if your sons are fully grown, you want to come up behind them, Dad. Give your son a big hug. Kiss him on the top of his head. Show him affection. And they may squirm and be like, Dad, stop it. What they're really saying is keep doing that. We need to show affection to our kids. We need to be tough dads as well as. I love that's exactly what this daddy does. He runs undignified with his skirts pulled up. He keeps kissing his son. And then his son kind of pulls out his PowerPoint presentation. He's like, all right, Dad, uh, here's how I'm going to pay you back. He's got this whole plan laid out. Verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. He starts his rehearsed speech. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's going to get into the part of it. Okay, here's how I'm going to pay you back. Here's my plan. His father interrupts all that. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his stinky, dirty feet. Right? Cover up his nakedness and his rags. We're going to clean up. Put some shoes on him. Put a robe on him. Not just any robe. Give him the best robe that we have. Question. Who would have owned the best robe in the household? The father, right? He's saying, give my son... 
an unmistakable sign to everyone. Everyone who works for him, everyone in town, I am restoring my son fully. He doesn't need to work. He doesn't need to pay back what he owes me. I'm putting my robe on him. He's fully restored to the family. Verse 23. says, then bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us celebrate to eat and celebrate to have a big barbecue. For this, my son was dead and alive again. He was lost and was found. And they began to celebrate. They throw us into feast would be a big deal. See, in Jesus' day, they didn't, well, they didn't eat meat every day. It was a big deal to eat meat. So they're going to kill the fattened calf. And probably in a big feast like this, everyone from town would have been invited. They would have everyone come and word would have spread quickly about the restoration of the younger son. Jesus shows the father pouncing on his son in love before the son even has a chance to recite his whole repentance speech. Even before I can get out the words of, I'm so sorry, I need to pay you back, all this stuff, the father just fills him with unconditional love and acceptance. What does that mean? It means that we fully come to God with nothing. That there's nothing we can do to earn the Father's love. Not even a repentant heart, not even the right words can earn God's love. God turns to us and just says, you are welcome. I'm so glad that you are here. You have teshuva. We talk about this. You, you, your repentance that you're going the wrong way and you realize that you turn around you come home. And God wraps us up in our arms before we even have to say anything. He says, it's okay. I love you. You're forgiven. You're restored. There's nothing we can do to earn the Father's love. Nothing. Now, some people, they want to stop there and they're like, this is an amazing story. I love it. This shows that God is a God of love, of universal love, who just unconditionally accepts everyone, no matter what. End of story. Let's go home. There's one problem. If this was the message of Jesus, then Jesus would end his story there. Hey, turn from your sins. You're welcome home. It's all good. God forgives you. But there's more to the story. A lot more to the story. Let's, let's keep going. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he had received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in to the party. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The older brother refuses to go into probably the biggest party his dad has ever thrown. Him standing outside is a way of publicly telling everyone, I disagree with the way my dad is treating my brother. I disagree with the grace and mercy that he is showing. And this forces the dad to come out of the party, a demeaning thing to do when you're the lord of the manor, when you are the host of this great feast, the whole town is there. Why is the older brother so upset? What's with all this talk of fattened calves and goats, right? Because we're like, just go to all these and get some more meat. What's the big deal? Well, meat was very precious. And there's a lot more going on here. See, by bringing the younger brother back into the family, you know what he's doing? He's once again made an heir with a claim to one-third of their now-married diminished wealth. And this takes off the elder brother. 
He won't even call my brother. He says, this son of yours, look what he did. And he won't even address his dad as dad. He just basically says to him, look, you, I am upset with you. He won't even call his dad by, by his title, father. And the way the elder brother treats his dad now is worthy of being disowned. The dad can kick him out and disown him now for the disrespect he's shown him. What does the dad do, though? Verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now Jesus is listening on the edge of their seats. They're like, oh, this is a good story. This is a good one. People have been talking about this story for 2,000 years. Oh, I can't wait to hear the end of this story. And they're like, are the brothers going to be reconciled? I don't know. It's like, tune in next season as we start, you know. Uh, they're like, is he, the older brother, his heart going to be softened by the love and grace the dad is showing to come out of the party and beg his son to come into the party? And just as all their thoughts are passing, what's going to happen next? The story ends. Brian talked about this last week with Jesus' story. Like, what a cliffhanger. Jesus does this. He just stops the story. Why would Jesus finish and tell us what's happening? Remember verse 1 and 2? Who is Jesus talking to primarily? He's got people over here, but he's primarily talking to the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? They're the older brothers. They're sitting outside, and Jesus is saying, Come. There is room in God's family for you. You, religious older brothers, alongside rebellious younger brothers, God's family is big enough. He doesn't finish the story because he's begging them, Come in. Jesus is redefining everything we thought we knew about connecting to God. He's redefining sin, what it means to be lost, what it means to be saved. In this story, we have two sons. One who's very, very bad, one who's very, very good. One who's rebellious and one who is religious. Yet both are alienated from the Father. The Father has to go out to both and invite them into the feast. So not just one lost son in this parable, there's two. See, the hearts of both brothers were the same. Both sons resented their father's authority and sought ways of getting out from under his authority. One rebelled by being very, very bad, and one rebelled by being very, very good. Do you realize what Jesus is teaching? So neither son loved the father for himself. They were both using the father for their own self-centered ends, rather than loving, enjoying, and serving him for his own. See, you can avoid Jesus as your Savior by breaking all the rules and running from Jesus. Or, you can avoid Jesus by trying to keep all the rules. And then you believe you have rights. You begin to believe that God owes you. That God owes you answered prayers. God owes you a good life and a ticket to heaven when you die. See, elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself. To love God. To know God. To enjoy him for his sake. For his glory. The first sign you might have an older brother's spirit that when life doesn't go the way you want to do, you get deeply angry and bitter. See, elder brothers believe that they keep all the rules and they deserve a good life, that God owes them a smooth road to try very hard to love these certain standards. Elder brothers especially have a tough time with suffering, like we all do, but if you have an elder brother's spirit, you're really going to struggle with that. Say, God, whoa, what? What's going on here? Look what all I do for you. You owe me this guy. See, older brothers base their self-image on being hardworking, on being moral, or being extremely smart or savvy. This inevitably leaves older brothers to feel superior. 
to those that don't have the same qualities. In fact, competitive comparison is the main way that elder brothers achieve a sense of their own significance. Elder brothers look down on others for not being disciplined with their money or their diet. Elder brothers feel superior to people they see as fat, or people they see on food stamps, or people they see struggling with addictions. Elder brothers often are married to younger brothers who struggle with addictions. The elder brother can't forgive his younger brother. He thinks, I would never do what you did. See, it's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to them. It's impossible to forgive someone if you feel superior to them. Am I getting in you guys' business a little bit today? <laughs> I've self-identified as an older brother, so this is coming from the spirit of love. But Jesus' parable creates something of a crisis for those of us who are listening. See, he's vividly portrayed the two pathways that the world primarily believes in. Pretty much everyone in the world falls into one of two camps. The way that the elder brother says, the good are in and the bad are out. Typically conservatives. The younger brother says, no, 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 you are wrong. The open-minded, progressive people are in. And the closed-minded, the bigoted are out. And both see each other as wrong and evil. However, Jesus ex exposes both as dead ends. See, the gospel of Jesus is not moralism, keeping all the right rules, the good and the bad out. But the gospel of Jesus is also not relativism. Progressive open-minded are in, and the bigoted and closed-minded are out. Jesus clearly wants us to take some radically different approach. God, what is it? We find the answer when we see that Jesus deliberately left someone out of the story. If you're listening closely to all three stories, there's someone missing in the third story. Did you catch it? And he deliberately left this person out so that we would look for him, and once finding him, we would find our own way home at last. See, Jesus told these three parables back to back. In each story, something is lost, a sheep, a coin, a son. And in each story, someone gets it back, and there's a big celebration. But there's one striking difference in the third story that Jesus told. In the first two stories, someone goes out and searches diligently for what's lost. And the searchers let nothing stand in their way. Nothing distracts them until they find that sheep, until they find that coin. So by the time we get to the third story, we're actually expecting someone to go out and find the lost son, right? We've all heard the story so many times that we don't really think of it that way. If you hear the story for the first time, you would catch that. Okay, someone out and found the sheep. Okay, good. Someone out and found the coin. Okay, good. Oh, lost son. Oh, man. Okay, who's going to go out and find the lost son? And nobody does. It's shocking. Jesus meant it to be that way. So by telling these three stories back to back, Jesus is inviting us to ask, well, who should have gone out and searched for the lost son. I came across this story that during the Vietnam War, a soldier went missing in action. When the family could get no word of through official channels, the older son flew to Vietnam and risked his life searching through the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. It said that despite the danger, he was never hurt, because those on both sides had heard of his dedication and respected his quest. He was known simply as the brother searching for his younger brother. That's what the older brother in this parable should have done. That's what the true elder brother 
would have done. He would have seen the agony of his father and said, Dad, my younger son, my younger brother's messed things up. I'm going to go find him. And even if he's blowing all the wealth like I imagine he has, I'm going to, at great cost to myself, I'm going to bring him home. I'm going to restore him to the family. So the truth is, it's only at the older brother's expense that the younger brother can be restored. Remember earlier in the story when Jesus said the father divided up all he had and gave it to the two sons? When the father says to the older brother, everything I have is yours, he's telling the literal truth. Every penny that remained in the family estate belonged to the older brother. Every robe, every ring, every fattened calf that the father slaughtered belonged to the older brother. And we want to say, that is not fair. What? See, there's always a cost to forgiveness and restoration. If we stop the story earlier, we just say, God welcomes you back. It's all good. Stop the story there. We're missing that there's always a cost to forgiveness and restoration. And who bears the cost of the story? The older brother. See, well, act one of the parable showed us how free the Father's forgiveness is, Act 2 gives us some insight into its costliness. See, the younger brother's restoration was free to him, but it came at an enormous cost to the older brother. The father couldn't just forgive his son and welcome back into the family. Somebody had to pay. The father couldn't reinstate him and restore him to the family except at the expense of his older brother. There's no other way. But see, Jesus doesn't put the true older brother in the story, the one who's willing to pay any cost to seek and save that which is lost. This is heartbreaking. See, the younger brother gets a Pharisee for an older brother. But you and I, we don't. By putting a flawed brother, a flawed older brother into the story, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and long for a true older brother. The kind of brother that we need. One who doesn't just go to a far country to search for us. But one who came from heaven to earth. One who's willing not just to pay a finite amount of money, but is willing to pay the ultimate price to restore us to God's family. See, whether we're more like the younger brother or the older brother in the story, we have all rebelled against God. We deserve alienation, isolation, and rejection. The point of this parable is that forgiveness always involves a price. Someone has to pay. There's no way for the younger brother to be restored to the family unless the older brother bore the cost himself. See, on the cross, Jesus paid the ultimate price as our elder brother so that we could be restored to our Heavenly Father. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so that you and I can receive the robe of salvation. And our nakedness can be clothed. An honor that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one time Jesus doesn't address him as father. He wasn't treated as a son. So that you and I can be treated as sons and daughters. Jesus brings us home. An enormous cost to himself. I want you to be melted and moved by what it cost bring you home. Jesus says, it's not about the good being in, the bad being out, the open-minded being in, and the bigoted being out. Jesus said, it's the humble that are restored to the family and the proud who are on the outside looking. 
gives you the sense, I think, that we all are a little bit like the younger brother. So we're all exiles, the Bible tells us. Longing for home. That's one of the main stories of the Bible. We're always traveling, never arriving. Houses we live in are only inns, but aren't home. Home continues to evade us. Genesis tells us why we feel like exiles longing for home. We were created to be friends with God in the presence of a beautiful garden. But then like the two brothers, we chafed under God's authority and we rejected it. And ever since, we've been exiles, wanting to come home, been alienated from our Father. And the message of the Bible is that the human race is a band of exiles longing for home. And the parable of the prodigal son is really about every one of us trying to find home. But we get a true elder brother who's willing to pay the cost. You and I, we welcome home. Before we can even get the words out of our mouth, God wraps us up as a good, good father. Welcome home. Welcome home. Wherever you've done, however bad you've messed up, maybe you're like a younger brother. You say, man, there's no way God can forgive me. And even if I did ask for forgiveness, I'd have to really work hard to make it up to him. God says, no. You don't have to pay any cost. You don't have to earn your salvation. You don't have to make it back up to me. Someone else paid that price for you. Maybe you like me, you identify a little more of a older brother. And we try to be really, really good so that God will owe us something. And we believe we deserve something because we're always there for God. But we try to use God instead of enjoy God. We try to be working out in the fields, doing the work of Him, instead of in the party, celebrating, communicating with Him. One of the other main signs that you are an elder brother is a dry and kind of crusty prayer life. Instead of just loving on God and speaking to Him as, as someone in love, it's more like a business partner. Someone you work with, a co-worker, saying, God, here's what I need. Here's my list of, of, of kind of what I want you to do for me. Instead, God says, no, come into the party. Stop working in the fields. Let's have a relationship. That's what God longs for each one of us. I'm going to invite the band to come up. To ask everyone to stand. to think before we receive the offer, we're just going to take a minute and uh, are you more like the older brother? Do you tend to use God to get things instead of just loving and enjoying Him and talking to Him for His sake? Or are you the younger brother? You've got some stuff you've messed up and you've been going down this path and you need to teshuva, you need to repent, which means turn around and just head back towards the Father, and He will welcome you with open arms. Maybe, maybe you have come home and God has welcomed you, 
best to be like Jesus. My challenge for you is to be an example of what the older brother should have done. Is there someone in your life you need to go seek? You need to go find. Like that person who went and found that lost sheep, left the 99 behind and went to find the one, or the one coin that was lost or what the older brother should have done. Maybe there's someone in your life who is lost, who is in a place of destruction, and God is maybe going to speak on your heart and say, I need you as their brother or their sister in Christ. Go find them. Bring them home. There's someone, each one of us, we can identify with in this world. Can you close your eyes?
We've forgotten the price that Jesus paid on the cross for us. We need to be moved and melted by what Jesus did for us. Maybe there's someone right now God has put in your heart, your mind. We need to go out and find and bring them back. Let's just take a minute and reflect. We pray, God, illuminate our hearts and our minds to know what we need to repent of. God, who we need to go after. Thank you, Jesus, for the cost that you paid for us, for our free forgiveness to us. It was a great cost.